Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Imagine a man who lives in a transparent world. He looks outside a window, and what does he see? If it's transparent, there's a tree there, but he sees through the tree to what's behind the tree. But what's behind the tree? A see-through rock. So he sees through the rock, and behind the rock is a hill, a beautiful hill, but he can't see it. It also is transparent. He sees through that hill and then stretching out forever, a long series of invisible, transparent things. The Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis gives us this picture and uses it to help us understand something very important of the day in which we live. Here's what he says. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It's good that the window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? It's no use trying to see through first principles. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. Although Lewis wrote those words decades ago, they apply more today than they applied when he wrote them. Some of you here are critical. You're critical people. And the Lord bless you and we need you, okay? And when you receive an invitation to a birthday party, you say, it's never just an invitation to a birthday party. Why did the person invite me to the birthday party? What is the person trying to accomplish? What are the undertones and the political maneuverings happening behind the curtains whereby I'm invited to this birthday party? Now, perhaps you were burnt in the past and that's why you've become such a critical person who must see through everything to what lies underneath. And if you live that sort of a life, then you will oftentimes see through guises. You will reveal hypocrisies because this world is full of it. But if you keep seeing through and seeing through and seeing through on and on forever, always assuming there's something through it to be seen, the next level, if you, as our age calls it, deconstruct everything, you'll never realize that that person invited you just because they wanted you to have cake. <laughs> the point of seeing through hypocrisies, the point of seeing through lies, is to see a truth that's behind the lie. But you and I live in an age that is sort of like a very critical person, but as a whole age in the Western world, that is always trying to see through everything. And that's because it's been burnt in the past by religious and other sorts of hypocrisies. And so it tries to see through, or you could say, get underneath absolutely everything that happens to see what is the secret motive, what's really happening underneath it. So it will take, for example, you could take American history, but you could take the history of any country. It's not particular to America, but you take the history of a nation and you realize that in the past, the history of our nation has sometimes been presented in deceitful ways. Sometimes it's been presented 
as only glorious and virtuous with no problems in it whatsoever. So now you have a younger generation coming up and they've seen some of the even real issues, evils that have been committed in the past. And so now they're critical. So you didn't tell us about those things. So there must be hidden motives under everything. So they begin looking through all of our history and things that really are virtuous in our history. And there are many, many things virtuous in American history. But now that critical spirit can see those. There must be something under it. There must be something beyond it. Or you take people's approach today to Christianity. And you begin to get a notion in your head, and this is the notion in the head of our whole age, where you see real wrongs, hypocrisies, lies, and abuses. You see church scandals and cover-ups. And then you think, I'm not going to be tricked like that again. So anytime you see a church or Christians doing something that seems virtuous, you think, ah, but is it covering something up? What's the real motive and what's going on behind the scenes? Sometimes, many times, it is helpful to see through so that you can find out what's really going on. But our culture today has taken the notion of seeing through and pulled the brakes out of the car and said, we're going to see through everything. But as C.S. Lewis pointed out many, many years ago, if you see through everything, at some point the whole world becomes invisible and there's nothing to be seen. It's important to see through many things, but it's just as important not to see through everything. How if you saw through the garden too, he asks. He says, the thing that must be seen are these first principles, basic truths that are real, but we've deconstructed them until even those basic truths at some point disappear. And hence all the, what's been called relativism, but hence this idea that you make truth for yourself. There's nothing solid or substantial. Everything's political. Everything's maneuvering. What we find today in our ongoing study of the Apostle Paul is the importance of not one, but two activities that if you want to live a useful Christian life, you have to strive to master both. And we can call them for the sake of simplicity, the ability to see and the ability to see through. You can't have just one or the other. What we see in the life of Paul himself is that he could do both. First, of course, when he was on the road to Damascus, by being blinded, he gained his sight. It was for the first time when Christ revealed himself to Paul there on the ground. Paul, for the first time, saw. And he saw something more clearly than he'd ever seen something. A first principle, if you, were, if you would. And it was Jesus Christ himself. And it was his gospel that all through this letter to the Galatians, Paul is saying, I received it from him. And Paul's eyes are wide open to Christ and to his gospel. Those are the first principles of all of life. But as you're going to see in our text, though Paul saw those things very clearly, he was also able to see through lies and hypocrisies and errors that threatened those things. He didn't become just naive, taking everything at face value, say, I accept everything by faith. That wasn't Paul. He accepted certain verities by faith and could not be moved. But when it came to day-to-day -day life, he also had the ability to see through hypocrisy. And we have to be able to do both of those things. So let me show you that in this text, and then we'll discuss it. We are in Galatians chapter 2, 
And we are looking at verses 11 to 13. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, one of the other leaders of the Jerusalem church, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. We're going to see more of the content of this disagreement that took place here next week, and really, honestly, all the way through the end of Galatians chapter 2. But I wanted to take a message just on these three verses now, not to focus on what he stood for as much as just to focus on the fact that he stood for something, <laughs> which in our day especially is very important to point out. You may remember that last week, Paul was defending his ongoing thesis that his gospel came from heaven, from Christ himself. And he defended it last week by pointing out, hey, I didn't get it from the Jerusalem leaders, those pillars, James, Peter, John, because I didn't even stay with them for any extended period of time for 14 years after I'd come to Christ. And I'd already been preaching my gospel. We saw that last week. He said when he finally went up there to Jerusalem to stay for a time and the other apostles heard the gospel that he was sharing with the Gentiles, they stuck out their right hand and said, that's right, that's the gospel. And they gave him the right hand of fellowship. They merely acknowledged, yes, that's a true gospel. Paul pointed that out last week to say, look, I didn't get my gospel from them. I'm not a slacky of the Jerusalem apostles. It came from Christ. Well, if that was evidence last week that Paul's gospel did not come from the Jerusalem apostles, what we find this week is even greater evidence that Paul was not merely some disciple of the apostles. Because this week, it's not the right hand of fellowship, but it is rebuking Peter, the greatest of the apostles, directly to his face. This is the final nail in the coffin for Paul. For any Judaizer, these false teachers out there claiming that Paul got his gospel from Peter, he said, when Peter compromised on the gospel, I rebuked him in public to his face. I'm not a slacky of Peter. Now we're going to see then these two activities that Paul was able to do at the same time, that allowed him to live this sort of life, to take the kind of stand that he took. And that is first, of course, that he saw so clearly, he could see with utter clarity the gospel, what it was, and he couldn't be made to blink. But it was just as important for him that he could also see through the hypocrisy of Peter and those who went with him who were threatening the gospel. So seeing and seeing through. Let's see these two things because they are, as I said, qualities that we have to have as a local church if we're to survive, much less to flourish. So let's look at these beginning with his seeing of clear, firm principles here in verse 11. 
But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, we don't know why Cephas came to Antioch. Antioch, you remember, was far north from Jerusalem. It was the place where Paul and Barnabas had been ministering. It was the city from which Paul would go out on his missionary journeys. A very significant early Christian city for that reason with the church there. We don't know why Peter went there. We're not told. You may remember that in the book of Acts, much earlier than this event, when Samaria, which was not as far north as Antioch, had first received the gospel and there were Christians there, the church in Jerusalem had sent both Peter and John to go to Samaria, presumably to encourage the church there, to see what was going on. Also in that case, uniquely to lay hands on the believers because they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet, something unique to that period of history. So we can assume something like that is going on here. Peter shows up from Jerusalem, there in Antioch, which is really Paul's turf, if you will, probably to investigate what's going on. And because Peter is viewed as sort of the center of Christianity at that time, though not a pope, but he is viewed that way there in Jerusalem, his coming was a significant thing. It was certainly a massive encouragement to the believers in Antioch, many of whom were non-Jewish. They were Gentiles and were still wrestling through what their place was in this new thing called the Church of Christ. Are they full members? And here was Paul saying, you absolutely are. That is the mystery of the gospel, that Christ has broken down the dividing wall and you are welcome, equal members of the body of Christ, even if you're not circumcised. Even if you're not Jewish and do not keep the Jewish dietary restrictions. This was something that made the Gentiles rejoice. And now here comes Peter. Peter, who you remember, was actually, even before Paul, one of the very first to make the point that the Gentiles were included in the people of God equally. Peter, who was the one who went over to Cornelius by means of a vision of, of God himself, he was the one who went over to Cornelius, went into his house, and dined with Gentiles. And when he got back to Jerusalem, some of the zealous Jewish Christians were quite upset about that. But here's Peter, who has been, in that sense at least, an advocate for the Gentiles' full inclusion. But, although we can guess that's why he came there, to encourage them, we don't really know. We don't know why he came there. In terms of when this took place, it's told to us after verses 1 through 10, and so probably it took place chronologically in time after what I take to be the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, there in verses 1 through 10. So if you're looking for when this took place, it's probably, it's after the council in Jerusalem and before the second missionary journey of Paul. In that time. If you read the book of Acts, you will find that in Acts 8, Luke recounts that period in between those two events like this. Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, that's where we are, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And it says, and after some days, they decide to go on their next journey. So what's happening in our text is during those some days in which Paul and Barnabas are still in Antioch and Peter comes up to visit them. You saw last week that, of course, when Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem at the council, they received the right hand of fellowship. Of course, our text now starts with the word, but. 
Paul was happy when the Jerusalem leaders were aligned with him. But when they were not aligned with him, he would not compromise his gospel to get their favor. Verse 14 is actually going to say that he rebuked Peter before them all. When he went up to Jerusalem, his first meeting with the leadership, you remember, was in private to preserve their dignity. But the nature of Peter's hypocrisy was a public thing. It was probably, in many ways, ruining the church at Antioch, separating Jews and Gentiles, compromising the message of the gospel. So he says, I opposed him to his face. He did it publicly before other Christians. And before you even think, wow, why would Paul stand up to the great Christian Peter at that time? Before you even ask that question, just observe that he did. <laughs> and that's important to observe. He really did oppose Peter himself, one of the greatest apostles, one of the greatest Christians through all history. Paul, this man lately born and lately come, stands up to Peter to his face publicly in front of other Christians, I'm sure much to their shock. The question is, could you ever do that? I recognize you're not apostles, capital A apostles. None of us are. That's good. Scripture's already written. We don't need that. But there is an example here of how we stand for the truth. It's worth asking yourself, is there any circumstance under heaven at any point that you could imagine at which time you would be willing to stand up to another Christian, in this case, a leader among Christians who is clearly compromising the gospel and stand up to them and tell them that to their face. I recognize we're all here different in our personalities and our temperaments, and some of you say, yes, <laughs> you're going to do it to me once I get out there today. You've been waiting for the green light. Please don't do that. And others of you have a temperament, well, you, you would never do that. You would never do that. I think that's part of why we have a passage like this in our text. Are you willing to take a stand the way that Paul did when there's a real compromise of the gospel? Now, the only way that a person can take a bold stand like this and it not just be vanity or foolishness is if, like Paul, you see foundational principles clearly. You will not be willing to take a stand, a bold, a public stand for something you only hold half-heartedly. If you think the gospel is true, yes, you're not going to take a stand for it, not in public, especially as the culture becomes more and more hostile. And there are more and more of those who call themselves Christians but then grab onto something less than Christianity. If you're not fully seeing with the same sort of vision that Paul had, 2020, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what it is, a free salvation to all who believe in Christ, the same old gospel, not needing revision, based upon the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which was as a substitute in the place of sinners, meeting the greatest need of humanity, which is pardon for our guilt and iniquity before God, which otherwise deserves eternal punishment in hell. If you think of any part of that description and think, uh, yes, I do believe that, you're not going to take a stand for that. 
Paul could go there to Peter, knowing the greatness of Peter, him who seemed to be influential and really was, in front of all Peter's friends from James down in Jerusalem. Paul could go there in front of Peter, look him in the eyes, and call him out on his sin. Not because he didn't like Peter. This isn't Paul being irrational. This isn't some personal vendetta Paul had. He was grateful to have the right hand of fellowship with Peter. Nor was this him just coming out, calling him a heretic and having him burnt or something like that. This was Paul giving this public, powerful rebuke simply because he saw the gospel so clearly. And when he saw it was compromised at all, he knew it. And he would not stand for it. You don't take a stand like Paul did if you don't see the gospel, the principles of the gospel with very great clarity. Paul believed in the gospel more and with more certainty than he believed in things he could see with his own physical eyeballs. He said it. We walk by faith, not by sight. The things he believed about the gospel were more certain to him than even the things he saw with his eyes. Because Paul had been blind. There had been a time when he could not see, but when he was stopped on the road to Damascus, and as you remember, for several days was actually blind in a physical sense. After Ananias came and prayed for him, what happened? Scales fell from his eyes, which was a picture of what was happening in his heart. And from that moment forward, Paul could finally see the truth of the gospel. He could finally see his own life, and put it in relation to everything else going on. He saw that he was set apart before his birth to be a minister of this gospel. He saw that this gospel is the solution for the needs not only of the Jewish people, but of all the Gentiles, of every person who lives on the earth. He saw it with an absolute conviction that did not waver his whole life. He saw the gospel truths. That's what gave him this confidence. This reminds me of a story that perhaps you have heard of the young Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon's grandfather was a minister of the gospel, and when Spurgeon himself was just a young boy, there was one time when he was at home, he lived with his grandfather, and his grandfather was torn up, was having a very difficult day, and he explained to the young Charles Spurgeon it was because one of the members of his church had backslidden and had gone back to the bar and back to drunkenness. And this just broke his grandfather's heart. Spurgeon heard this, and he got up as a young boy, and he walked out, and he walked directly down to the bar in town, flung open the door, pointed directly at the man who was breaking his grandfather's heart, and he said, what doest thou here, Elijah? sitting with the ungodly and you a member of a church and breaking your pastor's heart, I'm ashamed of you. I wouldn't break my pastor's heart, I'm sure. He closed the door and left. <laughs> now that older man sitting in the bar backsliding later wrote this. Well, I did feel angry, <laughs> but I knew it was all true. And I was guilty. So I put down my pipe did not touch my beer, but hurried away to a lonely spot and cast myself down before the Lord, confessing my sin and begging for forgiveness. And I will never forget how one of Spurgeon's best biographers, Arnold Dallimore, when recounting the story, spoke of this as Spurgeon's moral courage. 
Moral courage is what we have to have. Moral courage is what Paul had when he stood in front of Peter in public. All of us are tempted in a hostile, confident world to shrink back. And if you look in our text, that's what Peter did in verse 12. He drew back. But not Paul. And by God's grace, not us. So we can let the influencers know whom we love, desire the best for. Let the confident influencers touting their opinions everywhere on social media, we can let them know. You can go to Hollywood and let the actors and actresses who in many ways shape the way people think today, you can let them know. You can let the political movers and shakers know. You can know, let the important people in this world, the high and the mighty, know that although we are nothing whatsoever, the gospel is true. We will not change it for anyone. Sin is still sin. It didn't change after the sexual revolution. It's been sin the whole time. And we will still stand and die upon the hill of the fact that sin is sin, whether you find it in us or in anyone else. We're not going to change our message or our tone from what we find in the scriptures just because the world is trying to intimidate us. It means nothing to us. What? God is not partial. We are not partial. Paul is not partial. We cannot shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Why is it? Is it because we're such persnickety, angry little people? No, I know you. You know me. That's not what we are. The world thinks of us that way, but that's not what we are. Here are some of the most generous, kind, and open-hearted people I know in this city. It's because you see the gospel so clearly. You will not trade this pearl of great price for anything. Not for the fleeting pleasure of being temporarily accepted by people in your workplace or on the internet or the mysterious they who are out there who make all the decisions about popular opinion. We will not trade the gospel for them. We have here in this tome, sacred scripture, all the mysteries we need in this life to live for God and we will not trade it away. And this is precisely the way that Paul felt when Peter came to Antioch, ate with the Gentiles, and then, because he feared the circumcision party, began to draw away from the Gentiles, communicating to everyone, well, maybe salvation really is a matter of becoming Jewish, because now he won't associate with us. Paul saw the gospel so clearly, he would not put up with it. Look, you've been singing this since you were a child, but now is the time when we have to apply it. Now more than ever, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Put it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. That's what Paul was doing. He had every reason, given the prominence of Peter, to take a back seat, not to ruffle feathers, but he's not partial. He sees the gospel with clarity. He doesn't disown Peter. He doesn't treat Peter as if he's a heretic. But he is clear that Peter is compromising on the gospel. And so he stands up to him to his face. May God give us the same lion-like spirit because we see the gospel. So that is the first thing necessary for us. It is to see something. The first principles. Christ, his glory, his gospel. But that's only the first verse of our text. So now we move to the next two. And here we see that while we must see the gospel clearly to be good Christians, it's also necessary that we do be able to see through other things. 
We don't want everything to be windows, but some things are windows, and we do have to look through them. Notice this in verses 12 and 13. For before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Just as we have no idea why Peter came to Antioch from Jerusalem, so we have no idea why these certain men also came to Antioch from Jerusalem. Probably it was a similar reason, investigation, check on. Maybe they had heard some rumors that Paul was disowning their Jewish heritage. That was a rumor circulating, and they wanted to go check it out. We don't know what the reason was, but there they went. Now, it wouldn't be unlikely if they'd heard rumors about Paul and wanted to confirm or deny them, because later, after Paul's third missionary journey, when he finally goes down to Jerusalem again, at that point, he meets with probably these same people. It wouldn't be unlikely these same persons, these same brothers from James were there because he comes to Jerusalem and it says he met with James and the brothers with him. So this party, perhaps. And when he gets there, years later, this is what they tell Paul. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who've believed. They're all zealous for the law and they've been told about you. That's a rumor. They've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, which is exactly what Paul never did, but that's how rumors go, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So what you have here probably in our text, these certain men from James are zealous Jewish Christians with a great concern for all the Jews who've come to Christ and are hearing rumors that Paul is teaching even Jewish people, stop circumcising your kids, stop being Jewish, you know, do whatever you want, stop doing. Paul never taught that. What Paul taught was if you're a Gentile who's not a Jew and you come to Christ, you don't have to become Jewish. He said if you're already circumcised, you don't have to be uncircumcised. I don't care if Jewish, non-Jewish, that's fine. But the rumor was that Paul was against Judaism. He was against the law of Moses. He was anti all of that. When really, he was simply saying those things were fulfilled. He valued them very much. The law was good, he said. But these group of people, zealous for the law, these people from James, they were not heretics, and they were probably not unbelievers. These are genuine believers, unlike the Judaizers, but they had fallen back into old ways. They knew God they loved God, but just like Peter himself, it was really hard for them to accept the fact that Gentiles were accepted without being Jewish because they loved being Jews. You remember how hard this was for Peter himself to accept. He had to have the vision of the sheet three times, God making the point as clearly as possible through Peter's thick skull. The Gentiles are not in themselves unclean. They are full members of the body of Christ. Don't make them get circumcised and eat or not eat certain things. That age is over. In this age, they can be fully included in God's people. And so when, after that vision, 
God himself told Peter, you go to Cornelius' house, who's a Gentile. Peter obeyed. And Peter, once he gets there, said, you yourselves, you Gentiles, you know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. I shouldn't be here. The people back in Jerusalem are going to be upset, and they were. But he said, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter doesn't have an excuse. God literally showed him <laughs> through visions, direct revelation. The Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles, confirming they're fully included. What more do you want, Peter? And yet, when he, so when he comes to Antioch, at first he lives according to that revelation. And he's eating with the Gentiles because that's what God told him to do. They're not unclean. Great. He's eating with them. If he would have just kept doing that, everything would be fine. But here's where the hypocrisy entered. Then the certain men came up from Jerusalem. And Paul says when that happened, he drew back and separated himself. Now, before we judge Peter too strongly, which is our temptation... I can tell you, even from a leadership perspective, it is a real temptation and very difficult when you encounter frowning faces of people with strong opinions. There is a temptation where you want to do whatever you can to just make it go away. Make everybody happy with the decision you have made. And there is a calling, and Paul followed this too, where if it's ever possible, so far as it depends on us, including us as elders, we are happy to get rid of any right we have. Paul had the right to eat things sacrificed to idols, but he wouldn't do it if there's a Jew there. We are free to restrain the use of any of our rights or privileges as Christians for your sake if you have a very strong opinion about something. Not because I have to, but because I love you. And so anytime we can, we will, as leaders, try to bend toward the opinions around us. We're not inflexible. We're trying to bend toward views that people have for whatever reason. The problem is you can't always do it because while we can bend personally on a personal level toward you or toward you, we cannot bend the gospel toward anybody. We cannot bend our calling to minister to God's people and to lead the local church. We can bend on a personal level, but there are certain things that it would be unfaithful of us as stewards to bend toward you. But I'm just acknowledging that when we can't, we try everything we can, and at some point we may get to a place where we can't bend something toward you, it's hard because we love you and we really do care about you and we're not trying to make your life hard. So this is a strong temptation Unfortunately, Peter gave in to the temptation. He didn't bend personally toward the men who came from Jerusalem. He bent the gospel itself toward them. He communicated by his action that the gospel that says Gentiles are full members, equal full members in the church, he suggested by his action that's not true. Because if that's true, why isn't he eating with them? He's suggesting that they're lesser that in some way they're unclean. When the gospel says, through Christ's blood, they are just as clean as any Jewish believer is. It's obvious that P 
Peter probably wasn't saying this, but it's obvious he communicated this because look what happened in verse 13. And the rest of the Jews, so the Jewish Christians in Antioch, acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Clearly, that's what they saw Peter doing. Oh, oh, we shouldn't be with the Gentiles. Maybe they're not as included as we thought that they were. Peter was not, in this case, acting out of love for believers. Here is where you see Paul, and you have to be careful about this, but it's right here, and we have to do this sometimes. P Paul can not only see things, but he can see through things with a sort of God-given wisdom. He knows, and again, be careful, you don't always know your spouse's or your friend's motivations, so don't always assume them. But in this case, Paul knows what was motivating Peter, and he tells us, fearing the circumcision party. Now, you can imagine that Peter had justified his actions somehow. We all do it when we're compromising. Maybe he said, well, I'm just trying to love the brothers from Jerusalem. Here they are in a Gentile foreign city. Let's make them feel more comfortable. They're not used to us eating at Gentile houses. That'd be too much of a shock for them. The real way for me, since I'm from Jerusalem anyways, to love these guys is just to eat with them when there's no Gentiles around. We won't even make it an issue. I'll just spend time with them over here. But you know, whatever the justifications, this is what was happening Gentiles sitting in their houses at Antioch, hearts overjoyed that Peter himself was visiting their church. And they got to eat with him, so excited to be a part of the people of God. And now they're sitting in their house just waiting for a knock from Peter, waiting for that usual knock for him to come and share a meal with them. They're just waiting there and waiting and waiting. And Peter never knocks again. Can you imagine what that would do to these Gentile believers? Absolutely shattering. To make them feel like second-rate Christians because they didn't happen to be born Jewish. And of course, it compromised Paul's gospel, which said they were a full part of the body through Christ. Verse 14 tells us, in fact, it starts with, but when I saw. <laughs> when Paul saw what was happening... He not only saw what happened, he saw through what happened and realized there was what he calls here hypocrisy. Now, there are times where as Christians, our Christian optimism, which you ought to have because things do turn out well in the end, is at times mistaken for a naivety. So, we have a future hope and we are optimistic even in the face of trial, but the world will look at that and say, you guys are living for a pie in the sky by and by. You've got your head in the sand. Or again, we may see a situation and allow ourselves to be taken advantage of. Go the extra mile, turn the other cheek, and allow someone to take advantage of us for their sake because we love them. And what does the world think? You guys are spineless. You don't even stand up for yourself because of this God you believe in. You guys are naive. You don't understand how the world really works. It's dog eat dog. You're just going to be consumed and destroyed. The famous atheist Voltaire in his book Candide, which was also known as The Optimist, continues that sort of mock of Christians where you have Professor Pangloss, which means 
all talk. He's all talk. And he's the Christian who's telling his young student, everything's going to work out in the end. God's going to make everything. Romans 8, 28. God will make everything work out for good. And the atheist Voltaire, you know what he thinks of that? He makes Professor Pangloss a fool. And when his student goes out into the real world, that's when he realizes, no, it doesn't work that way. That's the way the world looks at us oftentimes, that because we're optimistic in our faith about the future, that we have an eternal hope, we're just naive. We don't actually understand the way that the world works. We can't really see what's going on. We're just blind. We're unrealistic. We put our head in the sand. No. I mean, some of us, we do that sometimes. Okay, we can be fair. But as a rule, that is not what Christians are. That's not what Christianity is. We're not unrealistic even about the present life. Here's Paul. He's certainly as innocent as a dove, but he's also as wise as a serpent. He doesn't see Peter withdraw and ask Peter, why are you doing that? And Peter says, oh, just, you know, to love on these guys. And Paul just says, oh, okay, yeah, 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 great. No, Peter, I know why you're doing that. Paul actually is very realistic. He's uncompromising in the message of the gospel. It won't be changed. But when it comes to what's happening around him, for the sake of the gospel, he cannot be naive. He has to have a sort of wisdom, an ability to discern what's really going on. Just like we do in our local church, when someone comes in with a false gospel, rarely is it put out front, right in front of us, saying, hey, I've got a false gospel, but instead it's hidden. And it's brought out once they've gained our trust. Sadly, it's so. We wish it weren't. And what are we going to do? Oh, well, seems like a nice guy. It's probably fine. <laughs> and out comes a denial of the Trinity. Oh, I'm sure he didn't mean it. He couldn't have meant it. Out comes another denial of the Trinity and the resurrection. Well, he must just misunderstand. Maybe once he's around here long enough, you know, people talk to him. He'll, he'll figure it out. He'll get it. Finally, we get the courage to go talk to him and say, hey, you can't be denying all the cardinal truths of the gospel. He says, oh, oh, you misunderstand me. I'm just enlightened. I'm just trying to reinterpret them for the modern age. I'm just trying to understand them from a different vantage point. So did Jesus resurrect? It's more a metaphor. We can say, well, I guess if you're just trying to look at it in a different way, would Paul do that? <laughs> Paul could see through the hypocrisy, and that was important in preserving the gospel. Jesus said we have to be innocent and doves as doves and wise as serpents because, quote, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Jesus was crucified. That's true. And some will see that as, oops, you know, he failed and messed up and got taken advantage of. But, you know, Jesus laid down his life of his own volition. He knew what was going on. He wasn't naive about the cross. He had already fully embraced that that's what he was going to do. Paul said of Satan, we are not ignorant of his designs. If we see a brother or sister start slipping towards sin or heresy, we don't go, oh, oh, oh. I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> no, we're not naive about it. We don't think, well, they'll probably be fine. No, we go and we address the problem. There are certain families, and some of you have grown up in families where if there's a big issue in the family, you just pretend you never saw it. I didn't see it. Did you see it? No. It never turns out well. And we're here a family of God, and here you have Paul and Peter, part of the family of God, one rebuking the other strongly. 
because he could see through and see there was some false motivation threatening the very gospel itself. And we as a family do have to be willing with all charity and all kindness and in wisdom, we have to be willing to challenge each other even on hidden motivations. Don't assume you know them all, but you have to be willing to challenge each other like Paul did Peter. If someone's not walking in step with the gospel, are you the sort of person who would be willing to go to that person in private if it's a private matter? but in public if it's a public matter, but would you be willing to go to that person and call them out on that when you have the clear information, you know the situation, you're not flying off the cuff in anger, you've thought about it, you've prayed about it, you've gathered everything you need to know, and you can go to the person and say, hey, I've got to call you out on this. Are you the sort of person who could do that or would you never do that under any circumstances? <laughs> You've got to do it. It's what Paul did for the sake of the gospel. Are we going to close our eyes and pretend there's no storm breaking up the ship when it is? Are we going to be found sleeping when our master returns? We're not unaware of what Satan's doing in the culture. We don't know all of it. But who here doesn't yet know that Satan is actively making use of inflammatory news media to get us in a rage about everything and everyone. Do we not know that yet? We're not aware of that? That's a surprise to us? We know that. Doesn't mean the news media is evil in itself. But who doesn't know that Satan's doing that? Who doesn't yet know that Satan, hidden motives, is at this time using the Christian's natural leaning toward compassion to draw him away into worldly ideologies? Do we not know that? Surely we know that. So let us be wise as serpents in our dealings. Not put our head in the sand, not look up at the sky. We're looking at each other, wide-eyed. And may Christ, when he returns, find us this way. Wide-eyed, looking at those facts of the gospel unblinkingly. And also looking at each other and not ignoring the problems and the issues and the slipping into error that we find. Not ignoring when there are compromises of the gospel. May God grant that we see the truths of the gospel, that we see through all hypocrisies that threaten it, and may he bring us safely in that way to our heavenly home.